Actually, by looking at the virtual space that converges with the physical space, you can also get an idea of what kinds of people, you know, maybe inhabit or interact with the physical space. Welcome to Struggles in the City, the podcast to understand power relations in cities. I'm Melodine Sommier. I'm working as an academy research fellow at the University of Jyväskylä in Finland. And our guest today is Tuomo Hippala, Associate Professor in English Language and Digital Humanities at the University of Helsinki. Welcome, Tuomo. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. In today's episode, we will talk about languages in cities through one of the research projects that you are leading, Tuomo, um, and through which you're trying to map the linguistic landscape of the Helsinki metropolitan area. The project is really rich uh, conceptually, methodologically. I think we will have a lot to, to talk about and a lot to, to learn from, from it. Um, should we start with that? Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the project in general? Sure. Um Uh, I got my PhD in English linguistics in 2014, and in 2017 I ended up at the Department of Geography because I wanted to do some um, research using social media data, and there were some people working on similar things um, in geography at the same time. And then um, somehow I've always had this interest in in um, multilingualism uh, in cities. And also I've had this in interest in working with larger volumes of data, so doing quantitative um, analyses and so on. And then one day um, two of my colleagues who are uh, biologists and ecologists actually um, started talking about how they measure diversity um, in the nature think about something like a biologist walking alone along a straight line in the forest and counting all the species and for that given tract of you know forest you can quantify that information about diversity into a single number which captures the kind of richness and diversity of the species. So I was eavesdropping on this conversation and I started thinking, hey, could I apply that to big volumes of data, you know, uh, from collected from social media in the city? That Could we use that to measure uh, multilingualism and linguistic diversity in urban environments? And That's how the project got started. Then I applied for some funding and eventually um, got a grant from the Emil Altonen Foundation and thinking um, about the kind of geographical aspects of the work. Um, as well, I recruited a doctoral researcher who's about to defend his thesis next autumn um, who specializes in geoinformatics. So um, doing all sorts of um, spatial statistics and spatial analytics. And I also had a um, linguist working in the project who uh, specializes in ethnography because we wanted to have this kind of big view of the um, urban environment and multilingualism and then complement that with kind of like um, on the ground field work. 
Mm -hmm. I think the project is a bit like your own profile in a way. It's really interdisciplinary. We can see when you're talking about it, you have people working in, in the linguistic area, in the geography, and you yourself are also in this with multimodality, multilingualism. Um, what does it help you to, to find out or to examine when you're focusing on cities? Well, why is that an aspect that you're interested in? Um, to me, it's somehow... Um Fascinating, especially on this kind of larger scale, because if you think about kind of linguistic studies of, let's say, um, urban environments and language use, they're typically quite um, small on the geographical scale because cities are so big, you cannot cover everything. But then if you start combining, you know, sources of big data like a population registry or if you collect social geotagged social media data, that you can maybe use that data to guide your work in the city, you know, focus on more specific areas like where there seems to be something interesting going on. And this is precisely what we've been aiming at in this project. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at the Helsinki metropolitan area. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that area? Why why is it interesting to, to look at, at that place in particular? Well, um, Just so it happens, I'm from Helsinki. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's usually but, a, yes. a good first reason. <laughs> but overall, I think, um, you know, the Helsinki metropolitan area, which consists of the capital city Helsinki um, and the cities of Espoo, Vantaa and Kauniainen, um, altogether you have about 1.2 million inhabitants in the area. And it's been always linguistically uh, diverse. So you've had... You know, Finnish and Swedish coexisting for a long time together with Russian um, and all sorts of other languages um, spoken in the city. And then we've had these kind of major changes in the um, population and the languages spoken in the area in the last 30 years or so, um, starting with the fall of the Soviet Union and, um, well, um, migrants uh, from the... Middle East and um, a lot of cross-border mobility with um, from Estonia, um, people who live these kind of transnational lives, um, mm -hmm. who have their home both in Finland and in Estonia, and of course also um, a sizable number of um, Russian speakers um, who moved uh, to Finland uh, from the kind of area ne near Saint Petersburg, the so-called Ingrian uh, Finns. So the area has been changing quite a lot. So one of these uh, things we wanted to understand are these kind of changes, like how many um, languages are spoken uh, in the area, uh, where are they used, can we find some um, geographical, you know, um, clusters of speakers of specific languages and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that at first when you were talking about cities that they are, of course, quite large areas, so it's difficult to study st cities per se in their entirety. Um, then did you focus now on some specific areas within the Helsinki metropolitan area and how did you, how did you decide on those? We actually... Um We did this kind of large-scale spatial um, analysis by collecting um, information from the Finnish population registry, uh, which is uh, maintained by Statistics Finland, this government-owned organization. Mm -hmm. um, there is quite a, a long um, vetting process for accessing the data, which is good thing, a good thing because it's highly sensitive. But um, for every individual living in Finland, um, 
you have about 140 variables describing their age, um, gender, first language, um, education level, home location, and so on. Um, so we got this information, and typically that information, especially the home location, um, is, um, how would I say, um, the home location is uh, expressed by this kind of, in the, within this kind of a 250-meter grid, uh, so that each individual will have a low home location in a grid cell uh, which is 250 meters wide and 250 meters um, uh, tall. And essentially um, you can then link specific individuals to roughly their home location. Of course you cannot get the accurate home location mm -hmm. due to privacy which is again um, a good thing. But um, we use this to do a kind of like an overview of where languages are being spoken. And for each one of these uh, grid cells, we also did these kind of diversity measurements uh, that I was talking about earlier. And then we also collected a lot of um, social media data from Instagram and from Twitter and aggregated the results into the same 250-meter grid so that we could see, you know, because the registry is only updated once a year, so it's fairly static as a source of data. But whereas social media data is being uh, generated all the time. So, and with the social media data, you can also get an idea of how people move about the city and uh, at what times. So we could identify locations uh, using these two sources of data, so the registry and the social media data, um, about like when there is um, some activity or linguistic diversity uh, and when. And based on this, we chose uh, three locations for the field work, which were um, Alexandrinkatu in the city center, which is not diverse at all, according to the registry data, because nobody mm -hmm. lives on that street. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very active throughout the 24 hours on social media which is not surprising because you also get people who don't reside in Finland. It's culturally important. It's a touristic landmark or close to very many important landmarks and so on. And then we chose um, Itäkeskus, um, focusing on Kauppakartanonkatu, which is on the eastern side of um, the Itävälä highway, uh, which is more like a residential area, which is diverse according to the register data and also um, diverse according to the social media data at given times of the day. Mm -hmm. And these are two kind of obvious places because if you know from, uh, if you're from Helsinki, you know kind of like what these places are like. But the, then the third place that we discovered using this kind of big data was the neighborhood called Pihlajamäki in northeastern Helsinki, which is not only diverse um, according to the register data, but also diverse throughout the day uh, on the uh, according to the social media data. And we would have never ever figured out to go to Pihlajamäki uh, without this uh, data. And um, the field work there was uh, particularly interesting. Um, I can talk about that a bit later. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really interesting how the, the data collection itself was kind of driven by part of the data that you already had as well. That that's, doesn't happen often, I think, really interesting. 
you've talked about social media and physical data or real life data. I'm not sure how you we mm -hmm. call that other part. Can you talk a bit more about the the interplay between those, how some are diverse on social media, but then you see lack of diversity in physical space or vice versa. How do those, do those converge or how are they uh, contradictory at times? That's a good question. I mean, I would say that, you know, um, within um, social linguistics, there is this kind of field core called um, linguistic landscapes, uh, which has traditionally studied languages visible in the physical space, which obviously shape the locations and how people, um, you know, generally feel about them. Because, I mean, if you go to a place like Alexander and Kato, you will see a lot of English alongside Finnish, for example. But if you go to Itakeskus, for, exa for example, then you will see languages like um, Arabic and Russian and Turkish, maybe, alongside Finnish and um, uh, English. And I, I think like traditionally linguistic landscapes for a long time focused only on the built environment. But then again, if you think about how we behave these days and how we um, are somehow very dependent on our mobile devices, I mean, I think a very sizable population, so many of us have a mobile sm a smartphone in their pockets and they're They also use social media. And with these kind of mobile devices where you have positioning technology like a GPS chip that allows tracking the mobile phone uh, in space, you can geotag the content that you um, create to specific physical spaces. And thus you have this kind of bridge, you know, or like an extension from uh, the physical space to this kind of corresponding virtual space, which um, this um, theorist of, um, or a human geographer called Aharon Kellerman has been theorizing as this kind of like a double space, space mm -hmm. where you have um, something, um, the physical space extends into this virtual space, which is then maintained by this connection um, through the kind of positioning technology and mobile devices. And I think that's also because, you know, that people leave traces of their activities and visits to these locations uh, on social media. So you can actually, by looking at the virtual space that converges with the physical space, you can also get an idea of what kinds of people, you know, maybe inhabit or interact with this physical space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and well, now through what you're talking about, we get a sense of the different kind of methodology that your methods that you're using. And I was mentioning at first how rich the project that is in, in that sense, in terms of the research design. Um, You've also used things like uh, data walk, for instance, walking with participants. So in a way, you're looking at how the cities are um, on social media and with the population register. But you're also looking at how people feel about their environment. Is that is that correct? That's true. Um, we had um, Hanna-Mari Pienimäki, who is a linguist um, specializing in ethnography, doing field work at all of these three sites that I mentioned, uh, taking photographs of the built environment, all, all sorts of media in that environment, but also recruiting people for these kind of go-along interviews because, you know, without asking the people who inhabit these places, you cannot really know what they think about the environment. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, we have an article coming out maybe in a few 
months time uh, that discusses especially these things like how people relate to different um, spaces and how these kind of um, affects or the kind of like um, how would I say um, they're kind of like views of the environment quite often when they talk about places and experiences um, of a certain location in the city actually draw on previous ex- um, previous experiences at that location or somewhere else. So people actually draw on their um, like personal histories when they're describing the place. But you cannot get this to this kind of uh, information very easily, um, especially by observing the physical linguistic landscape. Maybe you can find some traces of these kinds of uh, things on social media, but it's still quite tricky. So the best way is to just go and ask the people <laughs> and Yes, that's exactly what we did. And we also track these kind of walks. So for all of our data, we have this kind of location information component. So we also track these walks um, using GPS so we could see at precisely which location the people were talking about a certain thing and so on. So we could technically, if we would like to, we could compare the um, kind of um, interview results with the actual built environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's really multi-layered. Yeah, fascinating. And and what does it does it give you access to different kind of narratives or, or testimonies when you do those walk along interviews than when you do a traditional interview, say just sitting as a, at a cafe and asking participants about their view of the city? Does it change something how they talk about the city when you're actually walking in the city with them? I would say so because it's it's like. Um The idea is that the interviewer accompanies the interviewees on their everyday errands at the location. And typically they then, um, they were, these were kind of like semi-structured interviews. So the people would actually start talking about, you know, um, Hanna Mari would gradually lead the conversation into um, things um, concerning the environment. Uh, what's it like, you know, which languages you see or hear and so on. And they... They actually, when you're on the spot at the location, um, that kind of focuses the discussion. Mm-hmm. But then again, like I said, quite often people start talking about their previous experiences. So previous experiences. So there's this kind of like condensation of different times and spaces at the location, mm-hmm. and that that's something that really comes out when you're on that specific location. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's really nice to see how they bring up yeah different things. Also, that it's not just here and now, but it's here and now through also the past and other experiences. It might be really interesting to listen to to that. Um, in in the few articles that I've have read that are connected to the project, uh, you also mention a lot of challenges that come along with using s- those different methods. Um, are there some challenges in particular you, that? yeah you want to share with us maybe some things that you you thought of using again in the future but maybe in a different manner or or something that really stayed with you or something that was complicated to implement well i would say that of course if you think about something like social media data then um, access to social media data is very restricted these days so Mm -hmm. first we had the scandal uh, with facebook uh, which caused the application programming interfaces um, at Facebook and uh, Instagram to shut down. And now uh, when Elon Musk uh, bought Twitter, then the 
academic API that Twitter had for research purposes, which was very good, um, is being um, shut down, I mm-hmm. think, fairly soon. But that's just one thing. But um, I would say that, you know, one criticism that I quite often see is that uh, in social linguistics, they put a lot of value into these kind of, you know, um, how would I say, Language is understood as something much more complex than, you know, what it is in the register or or social media data. You know, if you, let's say in the registry, you say that some person speaks Finnish. The register cannot capture like, okay, what level of, uh, you know, um, competence the person uh, has in Finnish and, uh, you know, if the, whether they actually speak another language as their first language. So if they have two mm. first languages and um, the same with the, all these kind of computational techniques that we've been using, like automatic language identification uh, for social media data, we cannot, for example, reliably detect code switching between multiple Mm. languages. So this kind of like multilingualism is the real world multilingualism and actual language use is very much absent from the register and social media data. And thus, I think one should never, ever draw any conclusions about actual language use uh, from these sources. And that's why you need Mm. to go down to the kind of ground level to find out about these things. So I think that's a major limitation but um, then again, if we would have richer registry data in the sense that we could, if one could have multiple first languages, then that would uh, really make a difference. But still, you know, these kind of for these purposes, like maintaining a population registry, languages are considered kind of like monolithic entities, although, you know, there are many different types of Finnish being spoken in the city. Mm-hmm. Finnish as the, you know, first language, as a second language, as a foreign language. And all of that is just condensed into this one entity called Finnish. Mm -hmm. So in a way, is the aim of the project also to address those limitations, those more like institutional also limitation of the way language is used, for instance, in the population register or also how it's it's seen by some researchers, for instance, in social media also? Is the project also trying to deconstruct those monolithic representations of language use? Mm. We maybe don't engage in that debate that much because, I mean, it's fairly, um, how would I say, widely accepted. But Mm -hmm. this has resulted, uh, at least personally for me, I'm trying to um, drive this change at the Statistics Finland uh, lobby for that kind of change that we would have a better way of capturing, you know, information about people's languages into the register but that's that's a, a big process and i think it even would require like a change into the legislation but i mm-hmm. think there's a va- lot of value for that kind of information but it's um it's going to be difficult but i think it would be good to uh, improve how we um, record information about multilingualism and mm-hmm. i maybe hope to support my argument you know using the results of this project mm-hmm. Um, in the um, in the findings that I have read, some that have been published from the from the project, you talk about the use of English as well, and and how that connects to the linguistic diversity, multilingualism as well. Do you want to tell us more a bit about the specific status or specific use of English? How that came across your your data at this point? Well. I would say that English is the kind of like uh, lingua franca of social media, pretty much. So you have a lot of um, 
very, I mean, very many Finns use uh, English on social media. And I mean, when we did this kind of like, um, uh, we didn't limit the study to the Helsinki metropolitan area, but we looked at whole of Finland and the languages used by Finnish Twitter users whose home location was predicted to be in Finland. Uh, I think only one fifth of the users all used a single language. Mm-hmm. So four out of five would use multiple languages on the platform. So social media by default is much more richer and diverse than um, any kind of register data or the you know observations made in the built environment um, because we've been photographing the built environment as well and classifying, um, identifying the languages present there. But it's it's in- interesting when it comes to English. So English is obviously very do- dominant on social media, and it's also obviously dominant on location in locations like, um, you know, the city center, like, for example, for example on Aleksantarenkatu. You have as almost as many um, signs or visual media in the environment with English text as you have um, Finnish. Mm-hmm. Or they might, you know, co-occur in the same medium, so you would have multilingual signs. Um, when you go into the suburbs, like, um, or other, you know, smaller urban centers like Itakeskus, then English is not necessarily that prominent anymore. And I mean, this is to me very interesting because there has been a lot of debate mm-hmm. in Helsing in Sanomat, for example, the biggest newspaper about the role of English in Finland. And they had been walking in the downtown area and saying English is everywhere. Of course, it's everywhere in the city center because it's this kind of like non-place which you can find from every every major capital. Uh, but then if you go to the suburbs, you'll find out that Finnish is very prominent. And according to our interviews, Finnish is also the lingua franca of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting in the the current debate as well that you can find that with with the project, and you find it then mostly, I mean, through those different aspects as well in terms of the linguistic landscapes, but also with the interviews. Yes, yeah, so the interviewees tell that you know they typically communicate in Finnish, and Finnish is also very much the dominant language in the. Uh, physical linguistic landscape so i mean if you see for example like an ethnic food shop they might be just advertising their project products mainly in finnish mm-hmm. so it's not just english but of course it's everything appears like that if you just focus on the city center which is a completely different type of place than the smaller urban centers or the suburbs mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about this idea of non-place that you mentioned about the city center? Uh, I think it's quite well um, established in literature, in human geography. Um, You know, English makes the locations kind of like accessible internationally to all sorts of audiences um, who are able to speak or understand English. And whereas, you know, when when you winter um, outside of these kind of uh, places, then maybe, you know, when, when this kind of physical linguistic landscapes uh, landscape changes, uh, you know, into something dominantly finished, then you kind of lose access into what's around you. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's just that the um, according to quite a few of our um, interviews, especially if they come came from Finland, 
uh, or were Finnish, maybe mostly more, most of them were actually working in the service industry. They were somewhat irritated by the use of English everywhere. But if you ask the tourists, they say that the use of English makes everything so easy and uh, effortless and somehow pleasant and so on. So there's a lot of uh, different feelings about the use of English as well, mm-hmm. depending on who you ask. Yes, I can imagine that there would be great variations there. Yeah, um, you mentioned at first that the, um, the findings you got from that third area you you looked at in Helsinki were quite interesting. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So I was referring to Pihlajamäki, which is kind of like um, 1960s, 70s um, suburb in northeastern Helsinki, uh, which is mainly a residential area um, with. Um, a small mall in the city uh, or in the center and also you know places like a youth center and a church and so on and what we found at this location again is that the Finnish was pretty much the lingua franca and the locals who we interviewed very much appreciated the kind of linguistic diversity in the area and they said that you know um, one could One would typically communicate in Finnish and um, they also said that um, compared the location, you know, to other places like Berlin or France or whatever, where you have these kind of positive examples of multilingualism and generally people seem to be taking a lot of pride into um, the way their neighborhood is. Mm -hmm. And um, that was something quite different. You didn't have this kind of maybe like... uh, tension that you might see in Itakeskus, for example. Um, but uh, it was interesting because we would have never ever thought about going to Pihlajamäki unless it popped out in the kind of um, large-scale analysis. Mm. Yeah. Um, the podcast is about struggles in the in the city. Based on your, on your project, Do you see how urban linguistic diversity can be a struggle or or do you see it more as fostering a sense of community, a sense of belonging? What are the findings telling you about that? It's certainly a struggle for some of the inhabitants of the city. So we have plenty of examples in the interview data of people um, being subjected to all sorts of prejudices um, in their everyday life uh, based on their language or ethnic background and you know um, or they might find you know some spaces like very unwelcoming because they cannot understand anything Mm -hmm. um, um, especially in the suburbs uh, due to the role of Finnish so maybe the newcomers uh, might find um, you know everyday things very inaccessible due to the language barrier. Then we also had examples of people who, um, like um, in the upcoming article, we have a, have an extract from a about a 30-year-old um, Latvian lady um, who or woman who says that um, she tries to speak Finnish at, at the stores and so on and can get by as by posing as a Finn because mm-hmm. she's also white so she can you know avoid all sorts of other kind of like issues um, such as racism racism at mm-hmm. these locations so you there are a lot of struggles I think um, when it comes to um, multilingualism at these locations. So it's a, language is a resource for people um, um, 
a resource for communication. Of course, people uh, use it in different ways. And uh, But it was interesting also that, you know, then in Pihlajamäki, for example, the kind of um, people seem to be ha- have this sense of belonging and somehow the connecting force seemed to be Finnish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it can work, it can work in different ways depending yes, on the location and certainly. the people. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned different concepts as we've we've been talking, double space, uh, linguistic landscape. Is there maybe a, a concept or, or maybe the work of an author that has particularly guided you in this project or, or, or in the rest of your work as well when researching multimodal analysis of yeah language mm-hmm. use in metropolitan areas? I would say that... Um Maybe two major influences uh, in this work. Um, I got to say that, you know, when I got the idea of like measuring this uh, kind of linguistic diversity on a large scale, uh, using these kind of diversity um, indices or metrics from ecology, that had been already done in Hamburg by mm-hmm. um, a researcher called Hagen Poikert, um, who had been walking around a couple of neighborhoods or streets um, in Hamburg counting all the languages and then applying these kind of um, metrics to the data. So somebody had actually thought about that before, <laughs> um, but then we applied it to um, a, large, a much larger volume of data um, on social media. And then I, I would say in terms of the, um, as for the theory, I think um, Aaron Kellerman's um, this idea of double space and um the physical and virtual space has been very inspirational for me because uh, coming from a linguistics background, it's always nice that when you um, take a look at a neighboring field like geography and you find these kind of points of contact. I mean, human geography has a lot to do with humanities as well. <laughs> so uh, it's that's not surprising, but it's always it's always something, you know, fresh that you can take with you into your own field. Yes, yeah. Um, we're getting to the end of today's episode, Tuomo, uh, and I always finish with a more personal and, and playful question. So here comes your turn. Um, would you like to tell us what is your favorite city and what makes it your favorite city? I could answer Helsinki, but I'm not going to be <laughs> that boring. <laughs> so uh, one of my favorite cities uh, is Bremen in Germany. Hmm. Okay. Um for several reasons. Um, I have relatives there. Um, It has been very influential for my um, academic career and thinking uh, because I visited um, the University of Bremen as a PhD student Mm -hmm. and also then after getting my degree and I've been going back um, for the last 15 years and um, I'm a huge fan of the local football team, um, SV Werder Bremen. And um, that's something you don't experience in in Helsinki. So, I mean, if you have a city with about 600,000 inhabitants like you have in Bremen, which is an independent city-state within the Federal Federal Republic of Germany, um, the space is limited. The, it cannot mm-hmm. extend because, you know, it cannot extend really outside the um, city borders, which means that things kind of tend to remain the same and people feel really strongly about their neighborhood. So like the kind of eastern downtown area in Bremen has always been this kind of like countercultural um, uh, place. Um, 
And, you know, because they know that they're like in Helsinki, you know, be- things move around to kind of like the nightlife from Punavuore to Kallio, for example, like 10, 15 years ago. That cannot happen in Bremen because there's mm-hmm. no more space. They, mm-hmm. they, you cannot really gentrify places anymore, mm-hmm. um, which is why the people are very strongly, you know, um, standing up for these kind of changes in their neighborhood. So I like that idea very much. And also the other thing is that, you know, uh, when Werder Bremen are playing, so, you know, something like 7% of the city population walk to the stadium and you can uh, see and feel that everywhere on the game day. So I, I love that atmosphere very much. <laughs> yeah, I can see that there are lots of reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you, Tuomo, for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you.